This is Powers on Policing, the podcast that presents an inside look at the dedicated people who work in the criminal justice system. Your host is Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Hello, I'm broadcaster and podcaster Jordan Rich, honored to be here with Bill Powers in studio as Powers on Policing comes your way. Today, part one of an extensive interview with Terry Cunningham, Deputy Executive Director of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And now, here's Bill. Our first uh, guest is one of the most important people in law enforcement today is Terry Cunningham. Terry uh, has been a friend of mine in all candor since 1995 when we first met at the uh, FBI's National Academy and became quick friends. And over the last 25, 26 years, uh, we've bounced an awful lot off each other. And I've learned so much from him uh, through the years that I thought, what better guest to have than someone that everybody else can learn from. So Terry uh, born and uh, brought up in Wellesley, Massachusetts, did not come from a police family, but wound up with himself, his two brothers, and his sisters all being part of the police department. Terry uh, spent 17 years as the chief at Wellesley Police Department, but 35 years overall on the department. And during that time, he not only oversaw his own police department, but he was elected president of the Mass Chiefs Association uh, and uh, went on to become a major part of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, most often referred to as the IACP, ran for vice president, was elected uh, in an international audience, rose through the chairs to become president uh, from, nine, from 2015 uh, into 2016, which was some of the worst times to be a police officer in this country. And Terry became our spokesperson on national TV on, on numerous occasions, uh, was invited to the White House and spoke with the Obama administration on several occasions and uh, explained uh, the policing side of, uh, of the business, if you will, he handled it admirably all around. Shortly after his presidency, uh, he was asked to come back uh, to retire, actually, from the Wellesley Department and uh, took a position as the chief operating officer at the IACP, and that's a, a, a position that he still holds today. I clearly have a, a very good understanding of the IACP, as do most uh, people in, in law enforcement. Could you just explain in, in a general term what the organization is, the size, the membership, where do the people come from that are members, and then talk a bit about what the role the IACP plays in the political arena, in particular when it comes to policy, lawmaking, dealing with Congress, dealing with the executive branch of government. Perfect. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for having me on, Bill. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, IACP's been around a long time, been around since 1893 when it was first established. Um, we've got about 33,000 members in 170 countries now. Um, we're headquartered here in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, one of the things that, that most people don't realize is, you know, we're, we're a large policing organization. We're a large association, but we're a really large policing organization. Um, got about 140, you know, staff members. Uh, most of them are here at headquarters, but some of them are spread out around the world. Um, do have a yet have an office in Abu Dhabi, and we have an office in Seoul, South Korea as well. And you know, IECP is broken down in in separate divisions. We have you know four four divisions: the State Association of Chiefs of Police. So uh, essentially, every state their chiefs of police 
uh, organization is a member, and then we have the S&P, which is the state and provincial police. Uh, so we've got all the colonels from all the state police organizations in some of the provinces uh, provinces up into, into Canada. Um, we have our global policing division, and then we have our mid-sized agency division, which is agencies from 50 to 999 officers. So it's a big, kind of complex, complicated you know, machine with a lot of moving parts, and as you said, Bill, I've been around ICP. You know, I think I, I became a member probably in 1997, um, and then I got more involved in in the probably the you know 2008 2009 when I was president of the Mass Chiefs. Um, but even when I was elected and came to the chairs and became the president of ICP, it, it wasn't until I actually came to work here and kind of get the peek behind the curtain to see you know how much the organization actually does and how big it is. And, you know, from a, a global policing perspective, we've got, you know, MOUs, memorandums of understanding and agreement with, you know, all of the, the polls. So Interpol, Europol, GCC poll, Asiana poll, you know, we're, we really are, you know, global and it's not just the international in our name. So we do a lot of work all around the world. It's amazing to me how many places that you interoperate with, the skills that it takes to sit down with members of Congress, to sit down with members of the uh, DOJ and other other executive branch departments, and in this country today, we are at loggerheads at every at every level where people want to talk but they don't want to listen. I know you, and I know that probably your greatest quality is your ability to listen, not not to. What's the old saying? You know, uh, I know you hear me, but you're not listening. That you listen to others and 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 form your opinions uh, or the discussion based around where other people are coming from, and not just where you're coming from. Could you talk just a little bit about some of your interactions with different members of Congress who who sit on both sides of the aisle? Yeah, sure. No, happy to. Um, we spend a lot of our time. You know, you know, clearly one of the things that that IACP is very proud of, and our kind of our tagline is, is shaping the future of the policing profession. And we really do that through, you know, um, education, and but really a lot through advocacy, and advocating for, for, you know, what's best for the for the law enforcement profession. And as you mentioned, you know, I got you know two two brothers and a sister that were cops, and actually my grandfather was, but kind of part time. Um, and he was the one that really kind of got me interested in in the you know in the policing profession, um, and and sent me in that direction. So. Um, you know, we spend a, a lot of our time, even though we're a, we're a non-political organization operating in a highly charged, you know, political, divisive environment here, particularly in the in the D.C. you know area, um, and trying to you know make the changes that, that we think are necessary for the profession um, to help keep the cops safe, but also help to make sure that we're providing the appropriate amount of, you know, safety and, and response to the, to the communities that they deserve. Um, it's been really, really interesting because, you know, on any given day, the IECP will be accused of being too far to the left. And then on the, the same day or the next day, we'll be accused of being too far to the right. And I think that's because, as, as you said, you know, if you're not at the table having these discussions, then, you know, essentially you are what's for dinner. And, you know, the way we look at it is, you know, we want to be invited back and we want to be able to, to be in that room, sitting at that table, having these discussions and, and trying to make sure that people understand where, you know, where the policing profession is and where the policing 
profession has been and needs to go. Because um, it's really interesting as you talk to, there are, I mean, there are clearly members of, of Congress on both sides of the aisle that I've talked to that have either been, you know, uh, that were, you know, former or are former police officers. Um, some of them have been mayors in, you know, big cities or, or governors where, you know, they, they, they've had, you know, policing, you know, kind of in their portfolio and, and uh, uh, under their span of control. Um, so many of them do understand, you know, kind of the policing profession, um, but there's a lot that don't. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen both from the Trump administration and now into the Obama, excuse me, into the Biden administration, is that there was really nobody on, you know, on the staff, particularly at the White House, um, that had any involvement in policing. So they had no idea about, you know, you know what the police need, what the police really do. Um, you know, it's really just, you know, essentially what they see on TV and, and, and what they hear anecdotally. So we spend a really, uh, you know, a good amount of our time trying to educate um, the administration on, you know, w- what the police do. Um, and then working with, with the Department of Justice, um, you know, again, it, it you know, you know, it swings depending on which administration you're dealing with. But what we try to do is, you know, our policies are our policies. And we say we call balls and strikes. Um, and, you know, again, we, we try to be very apolitical. We don't endorse any um, political candidate. We do endorse folks per, per our Constitution. We do endorse folks that have, you know, any direct involvement over law enforcement. So, like, the Attorney General, the Supreme Court Justices, um, you know, ATF Director, DEA Director, um, we will look at those, and, and, and our board will, will endure. In most of those cases, we will endorse. Um, but, but trying to navigate through this and, and find people, you know, in Congress that you, you, you know, are willing to work with you, that we're willing to work with, um, and I, you know, let's take the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, right, as a great example. So when that was, you know, introduced in the House, um, there were clearly things in there that would be detrimental to, um, uh, to, uh, to policing, to the IACP, to our membership, but, you know, you know, really to the community in general. It, it put, you know, communities in jeopardy. Um, so trying to find the right people to have the conversation to say, hey, these are the things that need to be, you know, uh, changed or removed or edited, you know, from, from that. Um, we found some good partnerships in, in, uh, in the Senate, and I've had a, a, a longstanding relationship with both, you know, Senator Booker, uh, in conversations with, you know, Senator Graham and um, with Tim Scott. Um, and, you know, trying to find that, that middle ground of you know, what, what do we need to do, you know, for the profession to make it, to make it better and make it safer and to keep our community safe. So it's, it's interesting trying to navigate them all and, um, you know, trying to keep, you know, the, the discussions, you know, I, I think everybody knows that if you go back to the executive orders that, that have been issued, there was one issued actually under the Trump administration, and then there was this most recent one that was issued under the Biden administration on policing. Um, and we've been directly involved in, in those, you know, discussions and negotiations at the highest level. But we spend a, a fair amount of our time just trying to educate those folks. Terry, if I can jump in, Jordan Rich here, and thanks for joining us on Powers on Policing. You're in constant flux, evolution in terms of making the system work for not only the members, the members of the force, but for the community. There's a misconception that police reform is something that only happens when something happens. It seems to be something that you're constantly focusing on. How do we combat that misconception? 
I, that's a that's a great question, uh, Jordan. I appreciate yeah you you having me on. Um, I'm not really. Um, I don't really like to even use the word reform, to be honest with you, because when I look at it, you know, the, the entire you know policing pr- profession has gone through so many evolutions over the years, you know, as it as it should have. Um, but I think it's one of one of the professions. If you go back and you look at it, uh, the the willingness for uh, you know our profession to to change and adapt and evolve, and whether it's you know whether it's court cases or it's technology or it's training or you know, as soon as something comes down, you see, okay, you know, law, law enforcement is the first one to raise their hand and say, yeah, if there's a better way to do this, if there's a safer way to do this, if there's a way, you know, we can we can help our, our communities, you know, we're the first ones to, to, to do that. Um, and, and to your po- point, we've been doing that for years. So when I hear people, you know, start talking about, you know, particularly like when, when I'm having these discussions with, you know, the folks up in Congress and they start talking about, you know, uh, dual, you know, response. So you have mental health providers and, you know, substance abuse, you know, professionals, you know, responding with the police and they're, you know, this is a great idea. We should start doing this. Well, well, police chiefs have been calling for this for 20 years. Um, and, and, and where we, we kind of go sideways is we have a hard time getting the funding for it and communities look at it. And of course, they're going to prioritize their funding and they look at it and say, Hey, you know, we need more, you know, more money for the school, so we're not going to be able to give the police department the money that they, they want for, you know, a dual, you know, response model. Um, but, but to a lot of these people, to a lot of these people, this is this is new, um, and it, but it's not new to us. Uh, and we've been we've been working on it. And we've been evolving for years. So it's you, you, you. I think you hit the nail on the head there, you know, Jordan. And it's not just when things go bad. You know, we're always looking at you know how we can do things better. Harry, I. I uh been involved in training since the 1980s, and, and uh, we for decades have been asking for a post type of peace officers standards and training in Massachusetts. Every time we go f- try to move forward with it through the legislature, it always gets shut down because it's not an inexpensive thing and it's not an easy undertaking. Post uh, George Floyd and we now had police reform passed in Massachusetts and we now have post. But it was given to us almost like we're going to force you into this. And you're forcing us into giving us what we've been asking you for for at least 20 years. And it, it's the part that really disturbs me when it looks as though, as you said, it's not reform, it's evolution. We've been wanting to evolve and you haven't been willing to fund us. And, and fortunately, it takes a tragedy like, like what happened to George Floyd to um, get people involved. And all of a sudden, things are starting to move better. They're finding the funding. Uh, I'm not saying that it's, it's a perfect system, but it's a lot better than it was. And it gives us something to, to jump off with, to, to start to, to move forward with. I heard this decades ago about it. You know, every forest fire, the forest grows back stronger and better than it was before the fire. Well, I, I think we're going to you know, reap some benefits from from the tragedy, but at the same time, not exactly the way we've been asking for. But you spent 30, 35 years on the department. I spent 33 on mine and, and, uh, and years after that as well. But we're always changing. We are always changing, adapting, and moving on. To make it sound like we've been this stoic, you know, not stoic, but, you know, our heels dug in and, and fighting back on everything. It's not the way it is. And I, I'm, I'm glad that the, the narrative is finally starting to turn a little bit and voices like yours are being heard. You being the practitioner that, that you are, sitting in, in a meeting with people from Congress, someone that's actually been in the alleyway, that's faced down a bullet, that's faced down family tragedies, all of those things that, that all police get involved in all the time. Many of the decisions are being made by those that have never been practitioners, and it, it's a little bit disturbing. But again, having voices like yours at that table really open a lot of people's eyes. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Bill. And, and uh, you were dead on. I mean, back in probably 2002, 2003, um, yeah, I was a young chief at that point, and I, I was appointed to handle all the legislative affairs for the, the Mass Chiefs Appointment, and I did that for about eight years. And during that time, I, we asked over and over again for two things. One was funding for training, right, mm-hmm. um, a dedicated funding source, which we could never come up with. The firefighters in Massachusetts had it. You know, they tapped it into the, the um, your homeowner's insurance, and they took a piece of that to, to fund firefighters. We didn't have the, the, the same system on the police side. So the funding for any police training had to come from, you know, your agency. So you, you got an agency like Wellesley where, you know, they, they, they had the resources to do it. We were, we were very highly trained. And then you m- might go out into some small community out in western Massachusetts, and they had no training whatsoever. Um, and so to try and standardize that, you know, the first thing we asked for was the fund for training. And the second thing we asked for was a post system. We were one of the only states in the country that didn't have a post system. We didn't, didn't have a way to certify police officers, and better, and more importantly, we didn't have a way to decertify officers. So you get an officer that's involved in a, you know, a violent domestic in, in one town, and they get terminated, and they could be hired in another town in Massachusetts because they weren't decertified as a police officer. Or they could go out of state and be hired in another state. So that for years we asked for that. Your, you know, your point is dead on when you talk about, you know, then you see a tragedy like the George Floyd, you know, uh, incident, and out of that, you know, now Massachusetts says, hey, okay, we're, we're going to, you know, feed you this this uh, post system, whether you like it or not. We we're saying, wait a minute, this is what we've been asking for, you know. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that evolution of how we do things and, and our willingness to change and adapt. And, you know, um, when you look at the equipment and you look at whether it's body-worn cameras, you tell me another profession that's going to strap a camera on themselves. Is it going to be a doctor or a, a lawyer or a journalist? Or, you know, you tell me some a teacher is going to put a camera on and record everything that you do and everything that you say for your eight-hour shift or your 16-hour shift and some of the worst you know, situations that human beings can be put in um, and expect you to make the right decision every single time. But the police are willing to do it. Every officer I've spoken to completely embraces wearing a body camera because it vindicates them. The amount of internal affairs investigations that go on, you know, everywhere um, that are brought about based on race in particular, and and the great majority of them are about mistreatment, et cetera. The officer is vindicated in virtually, and I say virtually, I think it's at 100%, where people come in with complaints, and then you look at the body cam and you go, that's not exactly what happened. What you said happened is not what did happen. Here's what did happen. And then they kind of walk away or their lawyers go, yeah, well, uh, maybe we can have a discussion uh, off record here. And, and it goes away. But it, it's, it started a few years ago when we had to record all of our interrogations. And again, people thought that this is going to be terrible. And it's turned out to be a great asset to law enforcement because it's, you want to hear a jury, you want to see a jury, here it is. And, and it, it works out. Um, I'm not going to say it works out to the police advantage. I'm just going to say, here's the truth. You know, you can, you can make up stories all day long. You can have your own truth, but you can't have your own facts. And here's the factual part of it. So I'm really glad yeah. that some of these changes that are seemingly being forced on law enforcement are actually working to the benefit of law enforcement. Yo, Bill, I had the same concerns when they first started talking about putting, you know, first you had the dash cams and then they started talking about going to body-worn cameras. And now you look at it and and particularly when an officer says, hey, you're, I have a body-worn camera on and you're being recorded, 
it immediately brings more civility to the incident, right? Because yep. the uh, person on the other side knows now they're being recorded. Um, but in a lot of those cases where they come in and they make that complaint, you pull up the body worn camera and it didn't happen the you know the way. It, and in, as you said, probably ninety nine percent to one hundred percent of the cases, you know, it vindicates the officers. The other thing that we've seen is it's it's great for you know training purposes. You know, you can you can bring the officer in and you know uh, you know take a look at you know how they answered a call or how they made a motor vehicle stop or went on an alarm call. Um, it's great for training. It's also great for evidentiary purposes. You know, when the officer arrives on the scene, everything is as it was seen, you know, from the, the first arriving officer before you know, any evidence gets changed or moved or something happens. Um, so, you know, now when we look back on it, you know, and this is something that, you know, most agencies are actually asking for now. They're asking for the body-worn cameras. But again, you have people, you know, from some of our elected you know, representatives thinking that, well, we're going to force these cameras on people. Well, you don't have to. The police are willing to evolve and to go there. The conversation with Terry Cunningham continues on the next podcast in the series. Issues include the impact of defunding the police, how to recruit good candidates, mentorship, community policing, correcting the narrative, and more. You've been listening to Powers on Policing with Bill Powers, retired state police detective lieutenant, active educator, and published author. Please subscribe and download this podcast, available on all platforms, and we would greatly appreciate your ratings and reviews. Find out more at powersonpolicing.com.